Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of A Light Unto My Path podcast. Uh, I am your host, Howard Sides. Today we're picking up the continuating, continuing study of Revelation. I've uh, been here quite a while, but we're in chapter 19, so we're getting closer to the end. I won't say we're close, but we're getting closer. A uh, lot of information here to cover uh, within these chapters, so that that's what's we're just taking our time and covering every point. I know I kind of get a little frustrated or uh, disappointed sometimes when you're following a a very good commentary and it's got good points, but the one thing that you're trying to get clarification on, uh, they don't comment on. And I know that happens quite a few times uh, with certain commentaries. So uh, we're trying to cover all of it, all the phrases. So that, that's why we're taking our time. Uh, but today we're picking up in verse 11. And uh, we've got through, uh, let's see. We've got through first 10. Yeah, so I, I'm actually in the wrong place here. I need to back up some more. <laughs> Okay, all right, so uh, verse 11 here is uh, starting the section where uh, it speaks of the second coming of Christ, and this is the opening vision of what what John views, what he sees in these uh, first few verses here, Uh, verses 11 through 16 talks about that. Uh, Verses 17 through 19 uh, is a little more information on uh, the battle, if you want to call it that, at Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon, although it doesn't take place at Armageddon, or is it really technically a battle? It's more like a slaughter in the whole entire valley. Uh, And then verses uh, 20 uh, describes the beast and the false prophet are taken and thrown directly into the lake of fire. And then verse 21 is where Christ deals with the remnant left from the beast and the false prophet, which would be the kings and the armies involved there. Okay, so uh, pretty much just gave you an overview of chapter 19 there. And now we're going to get to uh, the rest of it. Now, verses 11 through 21 uh, would be the next section, which is called the tragic battle is stilled at last. The tragic battle is stilled at last. And there are, uh, let's see, one, uh, there's two sections to this. Uh, The Lord's coming described in verses 11 through 16. Uh, The Lord's conquest is described in verses 17 through 21. So there's two sections to that. So we're, of course, in the first one, the Lord's coming described. Uh, Within that, there is uh, the appearance of heaven's king. And then there's the apparel of heaven's king, the armies accompanying heaven's king, the annihilation by heaven's king, uh, the authority of heaven's king. And... uh, Yeah, well, I've actually got the avenging of heaven's king in verse 17, but uh, down through 21, but we've added that into another section. So we'll just uh, stop with those, what, one, two, three, four. Yeah, four points there. We'll figure it out. So I'm trying to make the 
headliners as I'm going along, and I'm using a couple of different outlines, mostly from John Phillips, and then I also use, uh, those of you that are preachers out there, or school teachers that teach pretty much the same way, um, I've got a book here uh, that's a great help. Uh, it's called The Outline Bible, and it's from a fellow by the name of Harold L. Wilmington, and that's W-I-L-L. Wilmington, if you want to look that up. It's called the Outline Bible. And it basically goes from Genesis to Revelation and, and it gives you great outlines. So if, if you're kind of stuck and don't really have an outline for a section you're uh, teaching or preaching, um, that's a great book to have. Um, let me throw this out too. This, this is a great book. Um, and I had forgot that I've been using this book. Haven't actually mentioned it in a while. Uh, but I was reading something yesterday for uh, my Sunday school portion, at, or, or Saturday. This is Monday, so it would have been Saturday. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, if you have a way of getting this book, those of you that study the Bible, uh, it's, a, it's a fellow by the name of Robert Boyd, B-O-Y-D, Robert Boyd. And he has a book called Boyd's Bible Handbook, Boyd's Bible Handbook. Um, this is an incredible tool. Uh, it gives, it, it breaks down each, uh, book of the Bible. Uh, it gives you like the outstanding points of it. It tells you the geography. It tells you about the science that is involved. It tells you about the archeology span in the area. It gives you the, the key chapter, the key verse, the key books, uh, things of that. It, it gives you like, uh, outlines of like, uh, say you're in the gospels. It'll break down the miracles that are mentioned. It'll mention the places they go to. Uh, great book, great book. So uh, there's your uh, sales portion <laughs> of the lesson today. Uh, you can go out and spend your money on those books. They're great books. I, and I know some people like this uh, commentary, commentator versus this commentator or whatever. Uh, but I put a lot of books together to do all that. I, I think I've got like about, oh boy. I can't even tell you how many different commentaries I have. I, I use some stuff online, uh, some some stuff like in cover-to-cover -cover books, so whatever. Anyway, um, let's get to the study today. I know some of you are not interested in that. They, you're just wanting to find out what's going to happen, right? This is like reading a novel, an interesting novel. All right, uh, let's get to this. The, the first part is in the first section of chapter 11. It's the appearance of heaven's king, the appearance of heaven's king. And uh, we haven't done it yet, so let's just read. Uh, let's read the verse, because uh, we'll be here probably a while, and in the next few verses we'll be here a while. Uh, Revelation 19, verse 11. And it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Okay, so that's the opening of our chapter here and in that first phrase and i saw heaven opened now the remaining part of this chapter gives us a more detailed description of events that take place with the pouring out of the sixth and seventh vials especially the event commonly known as the battle of armageddon now chapter 16 only tells us that the armies were gathered there while here in chapter 19 we're going to be given a few more details now, here in the book of Revelation, John has witnessed three things opened 
in heaven. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door opened in heaven. And then chapter 11 and verse 19, it says, And the temple of God was opened in heaven. Uh, but here, uh, all he tells us, And I saw heaven opened. I mean, we're talking here about the entire element of heaven, I guess you'd say. Uh, chapter 4 was a door. Chapter 11 was the temple of God. Uh, here it just says heaven's open. Uh, now, Charles John Ellicott, in his commentary, he points out that John sees heaven as opened, not opening, as he did in chapter 4. After I looked and behold, a door opened in heaven. Uh, now, while he was looking, the door was opening. You just kind of get that from what he said, a door opened. <laughs> okay, so so that's the action of the door being opened. But here he just looks and, and heaven's already open. So this tells us that the events have already started here in chapter 19. I saw heaven open. So when he looked, Christ is already on the way. And he is the figure that is on the white horse now. Uh, now, it is erroneously believed by many scholars that this opened door of heaven that it talks about in chapter 4 uh, is associated with the destructive event described by Isaiah and Peter. And what we're referencing is Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 2. Uh, it says, Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, we must remember that the phrase, Day of the Lord, covers the following timeline of events. It involves, or includes, uh, the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation period on earth, as well as the Bema Seat judgment in heaven, the bride church and Christ are wed, Christ coming to earth to establish his kingdom, the events at Armageddon, the defeat of the false prophet and Antichrist who are sent to the lake of fire, Satan tied up in the bottomless pit, the millennial reign, which is a thousand years, followed by the release of Satan and then the following rebellion, Satan's final confinement in the lake of fire, the great white throne judgment, as well as the destruction of the earth and heavens. So the day of the Lord covers pretty much chapter 4 of Revelation down through at least chapter, what, 20? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, chapter 4 through 20, a big chunk of the portion of the book of Revelation. So uh, when it says the day of the Lord, we're not talking about just a singular day uh it's like the the uh uh when we when we kind of use the phrase uh um the day of the bambino uh talking about uh babe ruth 
uh, and when he played for the uh, uh, New York Yankees, uh, that was quite an era. It, it's more like an era than it is a day. Okay. All right. Now, now uh, note that there are generally four views of the rapture of the church. Four views. There is the partial rapture. There is the pre-tribulation rapture. There is the mid-tribulation rapture, as well as the post-tribulation rapture. Now, the partial rapture uh, is the belief that only those true believers who are watching and waiting will be taken, while the rest must endure the tribulation. Now, if you studied your Bible any at all, you know that the church as a whole is going to be taken. No parts going to be, they're not going to be, it's not going to be separated. Um, that, that just doesn't fly. Okay. Uh, now, pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, this is the belief that the entire church will be raptured out before the tribulation begins. Now, let me state that this is the correct as well as the biblical view based on uh, what Second Thessalonians tells us. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, there's nothing in the Bible that mentions rapture. Well, you know what? The word Trinity is not in the Bible either, but we do know that there's God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It mentions it several times. As we get down into chapter 20, it never mentions uh, the uh, millennial reign, uh, and, and many people argue that that's it doesn't take place. But just because it's not mentioned in the Bible doesn't mean that the doctrine's not there. The teaching of the doctrine's there, okay? Uh, the third one, uh, mid-tribulation rapture, uh, is the belief that the church will be raptured out between the tribulation, which is the first three and a half years, and the great tribulation, which is the last three and a half years. Uh, they also state that the rapture of the two witnesses in chapter 11 is symbolic of this event. Uh, finally, the fourth view is the post tribulation rapture, which means that the entire church will be raptured out at the very end of the tribulation period. Now, their argument for that is that Christ said the church would have to go through tribulations and trials before ascending to heaven. Okay, um, define tribulations. Uh, this tribulation that the book of Revelation is talking about um, is far higher ramped up than what uh, tribulations and trials Christ was talking about. Okay, just going to leave it at that. Now, the intricate description of the event that takes place here shows how it differs from the rapture of the church. Okay, now the difference is at the rapture, it says uh, Christ meets the church in the air. Here, Christ comes with the church to earth. And, and we'll talk about how he's coming with the church. It has to do with verse... Uh, 14 there, but we'll get to that. Um, at the rapture, there is no judgment. Here, it is all judgment, nothing but. Uh, at the rapture, it says it will take place in the twinkling of an eye. It's going to happen so fast. Uh, I mean, you're not even going to realize it's happened. It's not going to go, oh, wow, look, there it is. Oh, yay, it's the rapture. No, it's going to take place so fast. Bing! I mean, the rapture of an eye, uh, twinkling of an eye. That has been measured and, I mean, it's just so fast, it's like a fraction of a second. I I can't remember what it was exactly, but it, it's going to take place fast. But here, uh, involved with the vi vials and, and describing what happens with them, 
Uh, we know that the sun will be darkened. The moon has gone out. The stars have fallen. There's going to be smoke. There's going to be lightning. And then it's going to be followed by this blinding glory as he appears. Uh, very, very different view uh, from the rapture. So we can't uh, take what goes what's happening in chapter 4 that deals with the rapture and combine it with this and say that it's the same event. Okay? All right. Now, the next phrase. It says, And behold a white horse. Now, verses 11 through 16 contains one of the most graphic uh, pictures of the second coming of Christ found in the Bible. White, as the color of a horse, is symbolic of triumph in battle. Now, the introduction of this white horse follows the pattern of a Roman triumphal procession. Uh, Merrill C. Tenney, that's T-E-N-N-E-Y, uh, he describes this, um, and I wish I'd wrote the name of the book that I got this from. I can't even remember. It was it was in a commentary, uh, and they quoted him, so I'm I'm quoting him directly out of that commentary. But I didn't get the source. Uh, I apologize for that. But if you look up Merrill, that's M E R R I L L, the letter C, and then Tenney, T E N N E Y. He he describes this Roman triumphant triumphal procession, uh, and I quote, uh, when a general returned from a successful campaign, he and his legions were granted the right to parade up the Via Sacra, the main street of Rome that led from the Forum to the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill. Mounted on a white horse, the general rode at the head of his troops, followed by the wagon loads of booty that he had taken from the conquered nation, excuse me, and by um, the chained captives that were to be executed or sold in the slave markets of the city. The chief captives, or rebels, were remanded to the Mamertine prison, where they were usually executed, while sacrifices of thanksgiving were offered in the temple, end quote. All right, so this white horse is in exact contrast to the white horse mentioned in chapter 6 and verse 2. Chapter 6 of Revelation verse 2, it says, And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now the contrast here uh, is that chapter 6 is describing the arrival of the Antichrist. Uh, John Gill, in his commentary, stated that he believed this white horse is a symbolic representation of the gospel, where in chapter 6 it would be the apostate versions used by the Antichrist, while here, chapter 11, it is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. However, this cannot be true as verse 13, when we get that far, it describes the Lord himself as called the Word of God. He didn't have the Word of God. It states that he himself was the Word of God. And then verse 15 tells us he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Now we know John 1, 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. Now, John Gill is describing the word of God as an object used by Jesus Christ 
Whereas John and our passage here describes the Word of God as being Christ himself. Now note in the two times that Jesus enters Jerusalem, or I should say entered Jerusalem, uh, the contrast of the donkey, well, I guess, yeah, enters <laughs> would be correct. Yeah, because one's past tense, one's still future tense, so it's still not happened yet. Uh, so the two times he enters. The first time he enters on, on, on this donkey. Uh, the second time he enters is going to be on, on this white horse. Now, a donkey is used for peace, while a horse is used for war. Jesus came meek and lowly upon his first arrival into Jerusalem, but not so this time as he arrives with the sword in his mouth. Now, while a white horse was usually reserved for the parades after the fact, here Christ arrives on the scene with the symbology that the war was already over. Now, with Christ riding this white horse, the symbology is that of his justice and holiness and also victory and triumph. All right, so that covers uh, the appearance of heaven's king. Now we look at the apparel of heaven's king, and this is the rest of verse 11 down through verse 13. So uh, let's just go ahead and read those verses. We'll pick up with where we're going to start this point here. Uh, it says, And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, if you caught what I read in verse 12 and then in verse 13, uh, you're like, wait a minute. Verse 12 said he had a name written that no man knew, but then in verse 13 he said it has a name that is called the Word of God. We'll get to that, <laughs> okay? If you picked up on that, I just wanted to point that out, first of all, but we'll get to that. All right, now, the apparel of heaven's king. Here in uh, the end of verse 11, this first statement here. Uh, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. Now here John is not calling him by his name, but rather he's recognizing him by his attributes. Now this word faithful in the Greek is the word pistos. That's P-I-S-T-O-S. Pistos. And it means object trustworthy. It means absolutely to be trusted. It means that in this title of faithful, that Christ is absolutely to be trusted. That means that he cannot not be believed. <laughs> I know that's bad English, but that's a simple way of saying it. Saying it. It's saying that Christ cannot not be believed. Okay? All right. Leave it at that. All right, the next title, true. Uh, this is the Greek word, alethinos, A-L-E-T-H-I-N-O-S. Pistos and alethinos. Now, alethinos means truthful, and there's two meanings with that. The first is true in the sense that Jesus Christ is the one who brings the truth and who never at any time has any falsehood in anything he says. Second, it also means genuine, as opposed to that which is unreal. In Jesus Christ, we meet reality. So, 
It is saying that he is faithful in performing all his promises and true in executing all his threatenings. The picture here is of a warrior bridegroom in combination of marriage joy and martial triumph described in Psalms 45. And I'll read that. Uh, it's like 17 verses, but it's not very long. Psalms 45. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, almost mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be bought, brought, sorry, brought. Uh, they shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Okay. All right. Now the next phrase here. Uh, in verse 11, and in righteousness, and in righteousness. Now, this phrase bears witness to the correct statement above that faithful and true are characteristics of Jesus Christ. Uh, next phrase, he doth judge and make war. He doth judge and make war. Now, within this little six-word phrase, we are given a great revelation of what is specifically taking place at this very moment. Now, this is not a description of the final judgment at the great white throne because we are told in Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15, that there will be no fight, no war, no excuse. Now, what is taking place here is the fulfillment of God's promise when the martyred saints asked and received their answer in Revelation 6, verses 10 and 11. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? 
And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brethren, that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. So this is the point where that little season is over. This is the point where Christ sets out to avenge the blood of those who were killed and martyred for their testimony. Now note the sequence of order here. In chapter 18, we had the overthrow of the harlot. Here in chapter 19, we have the overthrow of the beast, the Antichrist, as well as the false prophet. And in chapter 20, we'll see when we get that far, uh, we have the overthrow of Satan. Uh, James Burton Kaufman, in his commentary, he said, and I quote, These three, the dragon, being Satan, the sea beast, being the Antichrist, and the harlot, uh, as part of the false prophet, are the three great enemies of Christianity depicted in Revelation. Their destruction in these three chapters occurs in exactly the reverse order of their appearance in the prophecy, beginning in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And despite their overthrow being related in separate chapters and separate recapitulations, all three go down together. They are all three destroyed simultaneously in the final judgment and shall continue alive and active until the very last day of time, end quote. So, if you're like me, you like to ask questions that just kind of float around in your head, um, and here's the question. Why doesn't Christ just drop the hammer and end it all? Instead of having to deal with Edom, which, okay, we'll talk about that when we get that far, uh, then the Assyrian, uh, the Northern Coalition, then the gathered armies at Armageddon, and then after the millennial reign, he has to deal with Satan and the rebellion uh, for the final time. In fact, most people actually think Revelation is about God swooping down at Armageddon and doing this very thing. But the Bible, especially the Old Testament, records a very specific order of events that takes place in his second coming or the second advent, as some people refer to it, but it's second coming, a lot easier to remember. Uh, each and every one of the specific parts of judgment has a reason, but more specifically, a righteous result. Now, I just mentioned that it, uh, about dealing with Edom, so we'll, we'll go down these events uh, and kind of do a generic overview of them. I'm, I'm not going to go through because it's a lot of scripture to cover and it'll eat up all our time. But the first thing uh, that takes place is he destroys Edom. And that's recorded in Isaiah 34. And the reason being is that Edom was the enemy of Old Testament Israel. And, and quite frankly, this, in, in my own personal opinion, is actually the real battle of Armageddon. What takes place here in Edom. Uh, read Isaiah 34 and, and you'll understand <laughs> where I'm coming from uh, when I say that. Now, second, he destroys the Assyrian, who is also called Gog, and his armies from the north. That's Ezekiel 38 and 39. This was the enemy of present-day Israel. Third, in the location of Armageddon, Jesus takes the beast and false prophet and throws them into the lake of fire. 
Then he destroys the beasts, gathered armies of the world. And that's discussed in Revelation 14, 16, and at the end here of our current chapter, 19. This is the enemy of the church. And then finally, he defeats Satan and casts him into the lake of fire uh, later on in Revelation 20. This is the enemy of Christ himself. So if you didn't see that, first was Edom, who was the enemy of Old Testament Israel. Second was Assyrian or Gog and the armies of the north, who are the enemies of present-day Israel. Third, there's the beast and the Antichrist and all them that follow him. That's the enemy of the church. Finally, he defeats Satan and cast him into the lake of fire. Uh, this is the enemy of Christ himself. Now, you may ask how the Lord will be able to judge and make war. And it's answered in this title here at the end of verse 11. Uh, the who is the faithful and true. The how is the righteousness. The what is the judge and make war. So this is how the Lord will be able to judge and make war. Because he's the who, the how, and the what all wrapped up in one. Uh, Charles John Ellicott, in his commentary, he said, and I quote, The book of Revelation has shown us war, conflict, confusion. The passions of men surging against one another and dashing like vain waves against God's immutable laws. The world history is written in blood. We blame men for these cruel and desolating wars, but another question rises imperiously. Why does an all-good ruler allow these heartbreaking scenes? If earth's groans pain and trouble us, do they not grieve him? Where is he that he permits all this? The answer is, in righteousness he doth judge and make war. The worked out history of the world will make this plain. The righteousness of God is being revealed. All will see it one day. But now the just must live by faith in him who is faithful and true and who preserves the germ of all divine life in the history of the world. End quote. On that same thought, William Barclay, in his commentary on Revelation, says, and I quote, John finds his picture in the prophetic words of the Old Testament, where it is said of the chosen king of God, in Isaiah 11, 4, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. John's age knew all about the perversion of justice. No one could expect justice from a capricious heathen tyrant. In Asia Minor, Asia Minor even the tribunal of the proconsul was subject to bribery and maladministration. Wars were matters of ambition and tyranny and oppression rather than of justice. But when the conquering Christ comes, his power will be exercised in justice. End quote. All right, next phrase, verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire. That's an incredible picture there. When you're looking at this, it's total dark. Out of nowhere comes this blinding white light. Now, again, this is not going to be like some little light that just starts off in the faint distance and it just gets brighter and brighter. It's going to be like you're sitting in total darkness 
and somebody just bam cuts on their bright headlights right in the middle of nothing that that's what it's going to be like but even in in this brightness they'll be able to see the flames in his eyes imagine that picture now this phrase reminds us of how john first saw him in the beginning of the book revelation chapter 1 verses 14 through 15 his head and his hairs were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes were as a flame of fire and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And then again in Revelation 2, verse 18, he said, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now the picture here is that his eyes are gloriously bright and piercing which is symbolic of a, a couple of things. First of all, his omniscience. Uh, that word omniscience means having infinite knowledge of everything. He knows everything. Uh, it's also symbolic of his righteous judgment upon sin. And it's also uh, symbolic of his quick-sightedness in judgment, as well as being an intelligent warrior. In the siege of Jerusalem, recorded in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 20. Uh, there's a fellow there by the name of Rabshakeh, who is King Sennacherib's field commander. And he's going against King Hezekiah, who is basically under siege in the castle there. But Rabshakeh is pretty much coming out every so often and chiding the people and mocking them. And he says here, in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 20, he says, Thou sayest, but they are but vain words. I mean, he said that, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? <laughs> now, his clarity, uh, I mean, what this guy is saying, if you don't know this story, uh, this is where uh, Hezekiah prays to the Lord. And the Lord pretty much tells him, ah, don't you worry about him. I got something for him. And it's a fella called the Death Angel. And it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I talk about it all the time in Sunday school. If you're not a member of my Sunday school class, you'll, you'll <laughs> pick up on this uh, probably sooner or later in these podcasts. I probably have mentioned it here because I know I've mentioned this verse before. Uh, but over there in 2 Kings chapter 18, when it goes on and talks about it, it says that the Death Angel visited the camp. And it said that it killed 185,000 of them. But at the end, it mentions of the phrase dead corpses. Dead corpses. And I'll, I'll tell you that just stuck with me. Why not dead bodies? Why not just corpses? Why the double uh, description of death? Dead corpses. I mean, if it's a corpse, it's already dead. And if they're dead, why I call them corpses? Well, of course they are. The two just, that's two phrases, or two words that usually don't go together. And I think what it means is God passed double judgment on them. Um, they died physically and they died spiritually. Now, I know their spirit's alive and they're in hell waiting the judgment, but basically what it's saying is they were done. Um, all right. Uh, the next thing that these eyes of uh, fire are, uh, symbolic of is his clarity and penetration. 
It's the ability to look into and discover the secret machinations, the schemes, and the devices of his enemies against his people, as well as his exercise of it in favor of them. In other words, not only does he see what is going on, he is in control of what is going on. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Uh, finally, the other thing it's symbolic of is the fierceness of his anger against the enemies of his people. The eyes of his glory being provoked by their cruelty and wickedness, and likewise the suddenness of their destruction and the inevitableness of it. Uh, they, they can't avoid it. Uh, Robert Neighbor, in his commentary, he said, and I quote, He knows all things. There's nothing hidden or covered to him with whom the world has to do. He can be faithful and true in his judgments as he wars because his eyes are as a flame of fire. We have read that our God is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4.24 and again in Hebrews 12.29. We read now that his eyes are a fire. Such knowledge is too wonderful to us. He knows all things, every thought, every word, every impulse. He knows the very imaginations of the thoughts of the heart. End quote. And that's another phrase there, and it mentions it in the Bible, uh, that he knows the very imaginations of the thoughts of the heart. Now, I get the thoughts of the heart, okay? And, I mean, and really, that's, you know, things that we desire. That, that's based upon the heart there. Uh, I think that, and and I'm, when I say desired, it's not always good things, but sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But, but he says the imaginations of the thoughts, imaginations of the thoughts again that's one of them like double definitions of, it means more than what we think it means i haven't studied it out but i just wanted to point that out to you i, I think that's interesting that it says that uh, i don't know if it just means that you know he even knows our innermost desires and and things that maybe we don't even know about i mean within every one of us uh, is a sinful nature. Uh, some people end up being saved and, uh, you know, live the Christian way the best they can. Others live a sinful life and some people uh, try still to do good and do honorable uh, and yet others turn out to be murderers and, crim you know, criminals of all sorts. I don't know if that's what that imaginations of the thought of. Every kid that's that's born doesn't set out to be a uh, a mass murderer, or, or even when they're young, they don't even set out to be some uh, body that you know. Maybe their goal is, oh, I want to be a pilot, or maybe maybe we want to do great things. But we don't really know that's the imagination of the thoughts of our hearts. Anyway, that that's a good thought there with that. Okay, um, I'll tell you what. I'm going to stop here because this next section is. Uh, quite large, and on his head were many crowns. <laughs> we're going to talk about the, all the different crowns uh, that I could pull up anyway. Okay, so uh, we'll stop here and pick up on the next podcast on this next phrase here, and on his head were many crowns. Uh, let me point out that uh, <laughs> uh, I, I know you don't know what it is, 
But let me just say, and, and I think we should say this every so often. I don't have to tell you what it is. Those of you that know, know. Those of you that don't uh, can just rejoice in the fact. Uh, the Lord uh, today uh, answered a prayer that my family's had. Um, he took care of something, uh, just kind of opened the doors where it needed to be opened and closed them where they needed to be closed. And that's how we prayed for it. Uh, Lord, you know our need. Uh, please open the doors that need to be opened and close the ones that need to be closed. And I mean, it was as clear as the nose on your face to me and to my wife. Uh, it just happened that way. And the Lord really blessed us today. Uh, let me just say that. I, I, he just really blessed us with uh, something that just doesn't happen every day. Um, doesn't happen often. But as a child of God, if, if you truly pray that way, I, I'm telling you, the Lord wants to please us. He wants to do things for us. I mean, I mean, what parent doesn't want to do things for their child, right? And, and huh, what greater parent is there than God the Father in heaven? I mean, really, think about it. Who could do it better than he could? <laughs> Nobody. All right, uh, so anyway, I just wanted to mention that, and I wanted to say, um, you know, wanted you to join us in, in just celebrating that, thanking God for it, and, and just rejoicing in it. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast today. Uh, please remember to pray for me. Uh, pray for each other that listens to this podcast. Pray for your local church and your pastor. I don't say that often. Pray for your pastor. Uh, you don't really know what's going on uh, as far as the things your pastor has to take care of, uh, the burdens he has on his heart. Uh, you know, um, he needs your prayers just as much as anybody else. And certainly pray for our country. Okay? Thank you for listening today. Have a great day. God bless you. And hopefully you'll join me on the next podcast.